Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering climate change. Um, at CJR this week, along with The Nation and The Guardian and WNYC, we sponsored a conference all about how journalists should rethink how they approach the climate crisis. Um, the idea is that it's a story that's not being told with the urgency that it needs to be told. It's not being told in a way that connects and resonates with our audiences, and we need to rethink that. So this conference that we had at Columbia was the beginning of an effort that we're going to be making with the nation over the next several months to improve the way that news organizations, especially smaller news organizations and especially TV um, in smaller markets, the way they think about um, this story. So what we're going to do this week on The Kicker is hear part of that conversation. Um, this is a panel that I moderated, um, and it includes Chris Hayes, who is the host of All In on MSNBC, Naomi Klein, who's a longtime writer about environmental issues and a correspondent for The Intercept, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who is the editor and publisher of The Nation, Justin Warland, who is an environmental correspondent for Time Magazine, and Carlos Maza, who's a correspondent for Vox. So what you'll hear is that conversation from the Covering Climate Change Conference, which was at the Columbia Journalism School on April 30th. What we're going to do now is sort of uh, drill a little bit deeper in this theme of how does the media cover climate change and what can it do better. But instead of just talking very broadly, about the, the coverage in a big way. We're going we're gonna to talk specifically about the Green New Deal. And we're going to talk specifically about how that's being covered, um, how it should be covered, what are some other ideas that we might have about um, how to do this better. And I want to begin um, with Naomi Klein. Welcome. Thank you. Um, uh, Naomi is a senior correspondent for The Intercept. Naomi, you did a, uh, a video about the Green New Deal for The Intercept that aimed to sort of um, explain um, the details of it and the history of it in a way that, that was innovative and that captured people's attention. First, can you talk to us about how that came to be and what you were, who you were trying to reach with that? And, and then, because we, for those of you who haven't seen it, we're not going to show it right now, but just describe a little bit about how it how you, how, you, how you sort of approached it. Sure. Um, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, so th this, um, this video came out of uh, thinking, thinking about, frankly, how to do a bit of an end run around some pretty bad coverage of the Green New Deal. Um, and watching uh, the misinformation that was being spread so quickly, understanding that that was just the beginning. It, was, it actually started, uh, the conversation started in, back in December, so the issue was just sort of emerging. There had been the occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office. We were talking to some people in the Sunrise Movement about their plans for how to communicate the content of the Green New Deal in a context in which there just wasn't a lot of space to actually unpack the content of it. And I'm very interested in the original New Deal and what it got right and what it got wrong and the fact that it is a really important precedent for the fact that it, it is possible for societies to change quickly, to, to roll out a huge amount in the first 100 days. Um, 
And having covered this for a really long time, uh, I know that one of the strongest forces we are up against is the sense of doom, inevitability, but also a kind of a self-loathing. The old New Deal, one of the things you learn is that art was a huge part of it. And, and it was under relentless attack in the media. Uh, but a lot of the most important New Deal communication was done by artists, by muralists, by poster artists. So I called my friend Molly Crabapple, who is an absolutely brilliant visual artist, and we started sort of spitballing about how which artists we could bring in, and then Molly just said, I'd love to make a video with AOC. Um, and so we started talking about, okay, well, how do, we, how do we make a video about the Green New Deal? And we didn't want to do an explainer video. We wanted to do something that actually painted a picture of what the changed world would be like that would pierce this sense of inevitability about apocalypse. And The Intercept had recently published a piece by Kate Aronoff that was set in the year 2025 that was telling the story of a sort of fictional young person who, who had gone through all the programs of the Green New Deal. And it, really resonated with readers precisely because it was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm reading about a future that is not just us only with sex robots and like Mad Max warriors and, you know, it, like it's, it's actually kind of okay. And, and, and the film um, has been now viewed by, you know, I think something like eight or nine million times. None of us have ever experienced anything so viral. And it really, it really was about I, this. People were writing to us. They cried in front of their computers and I think the part of it that was really very resonant was seeing people working together uh, and not turning on each other. So that, yeah, that's the story of that video. Thank you. It is, um, it is striking, um, as Naomi said, the, the tone of the video is quite, it, it is uplifting and it's, and it's like, um, it's encouraging, which is something that you don't see um, in a lot of the other coverage. We have the slimmest of chances, but if, if we have, even that sliver of a chance, then it is our moral responsibility to enlarge that chance. And yes, that includes journalists who actually don't have a spare planet. Like there isn't a spare planet for journalists to go to if all of this goes wrong, which is just the weird thing of just, this, oh, we can't, you know, we have to stay objective here. What does that mean? Like we are all on this planet together. We can have real debates about how we get there, but we are all bounded by, uh, by, by what this planet can handle. And there isn't, you know, Elon Musk isn't going to be taking any of us with him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. Uh, Carlos Mazza from, from Vox um, is, a, uh, is a journalist at Vox who does um, a lot of his work um, via video storytelling. So talk us through, um, and, it, and it was actually mentioned earlier in the panel, I mean, I think it's been a, um, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a, it's a really important way to think about the shortcomings of the coverage of not just the Green New Deal, but a lot of politics and other big stories that um, especially DC reporters try to get their arms around. So talk us through sort of how you, how you sort of framed this, the video about framing. Yeah, well, I'll say first that I'm uh, not a climate um, reporter typically, so my imposter syndrome says hi and thanks for having me here today. But um, <laughs> I was just watching a ton of cable news coverage about the Green New Deal, and I had this sensation at the beginning of the cycle of like strange optimism, the kind that I imagine many felt after watching your all's video. And then uh, like two weeks later, I was dead on the inside because I had watched so many um, <laughs> CNN segments about whether Pelosi had called the Green New Deal the Green New Dream. And I was just like, I don't even know what, what matters anymore. I don't care about anything anymore. Um, and I thought it was interesting that I had shifted so quickly and figured that other people must be shifting too. Um, I didn't know there was a term for it, but I started researching like, what do you call it when 
news coverage just focuses on politics and like the gamesmanship of policy over the the merit of policy. And there's a there's a, a term for it um, that media uh, critics use, which is uh, tactical framing or strategic framing, which is just an approach to news coverage that asks, is this policy popular rather than is it a good idea? Um, and once you hear that frame, you're going to like think of that frame all the time. Not when you watch, especially CNN. It's one of those things that you can't unsee. And we cover every news or policy issue like this. But um, the research shows that when you cover policy issues from the lens of, um, is it popular? How will it help the party that's advocating for it? How will it uh, help the party that's opposed to it? What are the pitfalls? What coalitions are working together? Um, that it does two things. One, it triggers the cynicism of the audience. The audience starts to think about the policy in terms of um, these players are trying to win a game as opposed to these players are trying to stop us all from dying. And two, that once that cynicism is triggered, that you it depresses learning, that we stop caring mm. about the merit of the policy issue. And the super scary thing is that research shows that even if you sort of do a mix of both types of coverage, you say, you know, here are the merits and, and cons of the policy and also here are the political aspects, that people ignore the first part. Because once they hear the political stuff, they just kind of shut down and assume everything else is window dressing. So even news coverage that says the Green New Deal is a good idea, how will it hurt Dems in 2020? Everything else shuts down. The first part gets ignored. Um, so you can see that in basically every policy issue. But it strikes me uh, or it struck me as worth making a video about when it came to the Green New Deal, because um, like Naomi said, we really only get one shot shot at this. Uh, it seems to be one of those t issues that we should especially not treat as a game um, and that everyone should be invested in. All the reasons that climate change is tough to challenge and to get consumers to challenge are the same reasons that solutions to climate change or the, even the threat of climate change is so difficult for corporate news outlets to talk about because they thrive on conflict and sensationalism, which is why it's so much easier to be like, does Pelosi secretly hate AOC? than to be like, we are running out of time, people. Like, we have no plan B right now. What was the response to the video? Like, how did it, how did it rank versus other videos that, that you've done in terms of how many people watched? So when I pitched the climate video, a climate video, my, my in my pitch, I was like, no one's going to watch this, but I still think it matters. Um, it did really well. I checked it uh, last night, and I think it's like at 900K on YouTube, which is good for a strike video. Um, and the reaction on uh, the internet was like my dream, which is just, I I had noticed this thing was happening. I didn't know there was a phrase for it. And oh my God, this makes so much more sense now. I was wondering why I didn't understand this thing. And also, oh, I should probably read this like not that long document about what the Green New Deal is. Um, but my sensation or my sense after it was that most people had a sense that this type of coverage was um, making them more cynical and making them dumber. But because there wasn't I think most people can't imagine an alternative to it. Like strategic and tactical framing is so deeply embedded in the way that American news culture is organized and, and structured um, that we all just kind of give it, take it as a given, which is why like the, the Intercept video was so shocking because the idea of having an aspirational policy-oriented discussion about a major issue is like, it just, just doesn't exist on basically any cable news program uh, for the most part. Um, which is Bar a per perfect segue to Chris Hayes <laughs> at MSNBC. Welcome, um, Chris. Um, <clears throat> we write in the in the piece that we that we prepared for this about um, your coverage um, of climate change and about <clears throat> your 
your observations about whether there's an audience for it and why isn't there an audience for it, and then you got blowback on that. Um, let's talk about that first, um, because I know that, you know, um, this is a kind of like chicken-egg yeah. issue that, that Carlos yeah. brings up about corporate media, and, and is it going to do these stories if it senses there's no audience, and if they don't do the story, there'll be no audience? How do you think through and navigate that? I mean, my major feeling about this, having sort of been on both sides of this divide, is that people outside <clears throat> the mainstream media vastly overestimate the ability of the mainstream media to set agendas against the grain of people's exogenous attention. And people inside the mainstream media vastly underestimate their ability to do that. So people outside, I think, tend to think that like people will just pay attention if you show it to them. And they won't. Um, I mean, anyone up here has had the experience of doing things that do no traffic. There are stories that you can write that are really important, like what's happening with the million people in a concentration camp in Western China right now um, that just might not get a lot of traffic. Uh, the, the, the driver of exogenous attention is a real thing, and I think actually it's a really important thing to grapple with because fundamentally the attention economy is at the center of our politics in many ways. So. If you, want, if you wave that away or you elide it, you're going to miss the point, which is, I think, part of AOC's genius um, in all this, is recognizing the importance of the attentional economy. At the same time, I think people inside mainstream media vastly underestimate the degree to which you can set an agenda or vastly underestimate the degree to which you can do things and people will go with you. There are other values that should be driving a newsroom um, that have to do with informing the public and sort of what how you create civic life. But, you know, grappling with the reality of those attentional issues, I think, is a, is, can't be sort of hand-waved away. And part of this also, I think, has to do with different media. Like, that video did very well. We have an audience that's much older in general. I think, in many ways, there's a real generational divide in interest in this issue. Um, so there's all kinds of ways in which this stuff sort of bifurcates. So how do you get around this audience economics question? So the next time you go to your bosses and say, hey, I've got another great idea to have, you know, to spend a ton of money on something um, involving climate change and don't look at the numbers of the last one. This one's right. actually going to be a lot different. I mean, again, I think, well, one of the things we do, we've been covering it night, night in, night out. And that's, you know, and that's not, and that's done well. I mean, the, we did, we had Marky on when the, the data happened. We've had a variety of conversations about it. We've had different guests on it. Um, you know, there is, I mean, part of the problem here, right, is from, from, to Carlos's point, is like it's a fine line between this sort of cynical tactical coverage and the basic engine of narrative storytelling, which is conflict, generally, right? Like, there's a political fight that's happening about a thing. Right. That tends to be a framework, not just of what we do, but, you know, storytelling all the way back <laughs> Right. to, you know, the Odyssey. I, I, so, I think what Chris is the, describing is, is perfectly fair, that, you know, you give a platform to just talk about the ideas and then you talk about how you, what your plan is to actually implement them. But I do think that there's something else that mostly happens, which is that I think most of the people who talk about climate change on, on television have not spent the necessary time to understand totally. the IPCC yes. reports, to understand that we are bounded by a global climate budget to understand the implications of not doing what we're doing and it's just unforgivable like we cannot have these conversations without being checked 
by the science. It's like having a, a panel about, you know, a legal case without having any lawyers going, no, but that's illegal. You know, like we are bounded by the law. We can't just make stuff up, right? And so, you know, all of these television stations have, you know, military guys and former CIA guys and tons of lawyers and judges on their roster to be experts in these conversations. But climate scientists are brought in once in a while to just be the check. I don't think we should hand the conversation over to climate scientists. I don't think that they are the policy experts in this, but they are the people who can say, well, okay, well, if you just do a carbon tax instead of the Green New Deal, um, you know, then let's look at the places that have done that. Their emissions have continued to go up. That won't be enough. You know, we actually have to keep bringing it back to the science. Yeah, it's I don't, a question of booking, right? Yeah, it's partly that. I mean, to me, the most important thing now about discussing climate is generally the way that we approach on the show is all climate discussions happen in the context of the debate over how we will meet the IPCC goals. Let me turn to um, Justin Worland from Time. Um, time, I guess it's 30 years ago this year, put the planet on its cover as... Um, Planet of the Year. Planet of the Year. And, 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 and that was intended to drive this conversation, um, which happened a bit. And then, as we all know, that faded. Um, I think you're in a different situation at time. Um, you cover the environment there um, in that you don't have, you know, you have the same day-to-day -day challenges of framing and, right. and responding to the news. You can step back a bit. How, how do you navigate this audience demand story and, and how much do you take into this into account versus this is a story that people need to know whether I think they're going to read it or not and how do you what is the appetite at the magazine for climate coverage in general I think there's a lot of appetite I think uh, I think there's no question that the last six months the last year has been I mean, interest in what I do has increased a lot thanks to the IPCC report and just the general conversation. I think we, senior leaders at the magazine, would love to do more. There is the question of how do we engage our readers, and I think you know one of the things we always say is we serve our readers. And so, when I write a story, um, I think there's a lot of folks in the energy climate space who are writing for, quite frankly, the audience in this room, for others who are writing about um, energy, environment, climate, and trying to influence that discussion. But we're always saying, well, who are our readers? They're the people in Kansas City picking this up in a dentist's office. And what's compelling to them? And often that is uh, really going back to basics. I mean, somebody should be able to pick up my story and not have read a climate story in two years or 10 years or ever and still learn something and understand where we are. And so I think a lot of that comes through telling stories through people, through characters, through case studies. Um, but uh, it all has to be accessible um, and interesting and entertaining and also educational. Uh Katrina, you mentioned in your opening remarks uh, that the nation has been covering this um, for a very, very long time. And, and <clears throat> I'm curious how, you know, there's been, there, there is some level of optimism up here about um, maybe this is optimism. <laughs> well, that, that at least that there may be a, a some kind of corner turned. No, no, I agree. I guess, no. and no one in this room is complicit with this, but so much of our media has, for decades, been about um, a sort of contributing to a downsized politics of excluded alternatives. And I think it is a moment where, with this aspirational Green New Deal, 
it's no longer an environmental movement with all due, you know, with all humility saying no, no to hurting critters, I love critters, no to pipelines, but it has a vision. And it picks up on uh, Steve Cole who talked about the economics, the economic powers we confront, because the Green New Deal is more than just climate. It is very much central to climate, but it has with it something that connects to people's lives, jobs, health care. It's a broader vision. It's a, it's a broader framework uh, for thinking about climate. And in that sense, it's very important. And finally, finally, I'm very moved by what Margaret Sullivan said. I think that's very important. You have a media critic for the Washington Post saying, if I'm an advocate for press rights, why not be an advocate for a healthy planet? That is movement. That is optimism. And finally, to tell stories which Chris you know, understands is so critical. You want to connect these issues to people's lives, to what matters to people. It's a kind of service journalism, but it's done in the interest of contributing to the power of a Green New Deal and the survival of a planet. So I think all power to stories uh, that need to be told. Thanks for listening. Um, you can read a lot more about the climate change coverage and everything else that we do at CJR.org. Keep an eye on that. Also keep an eye next week on another conference that we're having. This one is about ethics and security and technology. Um, there's still room if you want to join us. Sign up at CJR.org and watch our Twitter and Facebook feeds for more information on that. Thanks for listening. See you next week.